None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is Dr. Peter Grinspoon, instructor at Harvard Medical School, PCP at Mass General Hospital. His new book is Seen Through the Smoke, a Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana, released on 4-20-23. Awesome. How are you today? Good. I'm great. Thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's uh, seeing through the smoke. A cannabis specialist untangles the truth about marijuana, and it's a great book for drug nerds and everybody else. It's loaded with science, and uh, I just got it in on Friday, and I've been spending all weekend reading it. And I also attended uh, like the grand opening of the cannabis museum in Athens, Ohio. So it's been a weed-filled. Uh, weekend for me so yeah i really appreciate it and this is the kratom science podcast but there are a lot of parallels uh and definitely a crossover community i have a container of legal medicinal marijuana right here on my desk i owe some gratitude to your uh father for his pioneering work in reducing the stigma around cannabis and just i guess uh tell us a little bit about your background well i um am a primary care doctor at Harvard and a cannabis specialist at my hospital, Mass General Hospital. I've been involved in the uh, drug issue my entire life. The main drug that I'm involved with is cannabis, both because, as you alluded to, my dad was a very famous uh, cannabis scholar for the last 50 years of his life, Uh, but also because my brother Danny, when I was growing up, uh, used medical cannabis to to try to contend with the side effects of the chemotherapy regimen he was on during his losing fight with childhood leukemia. So I knew cannabis, legitimate plant-based medication uh, before starting medical school. And I've been sort of very interested in treating patients and learning about the science, again, both because of my brother's experience and because of my dad being a a cannabis scholar my entire career. I, I do also want to mention that I'm 15 years in recovery from opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first book was was about my uh, struggles, how a doctor gets addicted and unaddicted to opiates. So I've written about Kratom and I've argued that it needs to be studied and legalized and regulated because it really helps people with chronic pain and um, with addiction, Not certainly not criminalized. So while my focus is on cannabis, I'm a huge supporter of Kratom and a huge supporter of psychedelics as well. Yeah, you did write um, an article in 2019, Kratom, Fearworthy Foliage or Beneficial Botanical. And yeah, that was an excellent article. And I think you nailed kind of the problems with the Kratom. You said distortion from corporate interests, anti-drug ideology, and romanticism by Kratom enthusiasts. And and I've been writing about Kratom for about four and a half years. And in my work, I try to talk about all the problems and not just um, do one side or the other because I see that this helps people, but I also want to make sure that it's not oversold by the industry as a cure for anything, and it keeps them safe. That's a lot of the parallels with like uh, marijuana is like that too. I, I mean, you talked about cancer. Uh, people say, oh, it cures cancer, but that's not entirely true. Well, yeah, cannabis doesn't 
cure cancer yet. We're studying it. I mean, it interestingly, cannabis can different components of cannabis are really effective at killing cancer cells in the lab. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if eventually cannabis becomes part of our chemotherapy regimens. But right now, we haven't shown in humans that cannabis cures cancer. So it's dangerous when someone goes and uses cannabis instead of seeing an oncologist and using chemotherapy. You know, most oncologists are in favor of cannabis, and cannabis is excellent for the symptoms of cancer, uh, the pain, the anxiety, the insomnia. And obviously, it's extremely helpful like it was when my my brother was danny danny was dying in the 1970s for chemotherapy so uh, cannabis really helps with the symptoms of cancer and the symptoms of cancer treatment but it hasn't been shown to cure cancer yet so stay tuned and uh, if you have cancer go ahead and use cannabis for the symptoms but also see your oncologist for treating the cancer <laughs> so yeah exactly i wanted to talk about the history a little bit that's what the book starts off near the beginning of cannabis prohibition it seems like the medical establishment mostly went along with reefer madness and uh Ainslinger, um other than you talk about the, the LaGuardia committee and some others and but they mostly went along with it despite knowing it was bullshit uh why exactly did that happen well, one of my favorite chapters in my book is about doctors and the war on drugs. And this pertains not just to cannabis, but to psychedelics, kratom, uh, opiates, many other drugs. Um, it's called do be no harm, sort of a play on the words do no harm, because doctors are supposed to do no harm. But we did a ton of harm by being on the wrong side of the war on drugs. And we've doctors have sort of been victims of and perpetrators of all the nonsense and misinformation coming down from the U.S. government for the last 50 years on cannabis. Ironically, cannabis was widely used and prescribed in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and physicians at that point were generally in favor of it. When they criminalized cannabis in 1937, one of the leading voices against criminalization was the American Medical Association. They testified that this is a safe and helpful drug. Uh, They were overruled, as you mentioned, by Anslinger, who had this very racist uh, and kind of based on competing commercial interests agenda to criminalize cannabis. Uh, health and safety were never part of why they criminalized cannabis in the first place, which is really interesting. And then the doctors were under a lot of political pressure to get in line with the government's mission. And sadly, instead of being independent and speaking up uh, for their beliefs and their patients, they sort of just adopted the whole drug war platform about cannabis and other drugs, hook, line, and sinker. And uh, you know, I've been critical of them, but I, I can't say that doctors are now um, switching back and most of them are in favor of legalizing certainly medical cannabis. So we're making progress, but I don't think the medical profession has, uh, you know, really much to be proud of in terms of the last 50 years with cannabis policy. You cite a lot of even modern studies where there, that war on drugs mentality is still kind of residual and, and it's still kind of in the science. Why does it actually still happen? For example, why is like the endocannabinoid system not yet taught in uh, medical school despite it being discovered in 1990? Well, that's a great question. Um, the endocannabinoid system is the system of neurotransmitters and receptors by which cannabis works its effects. It also regulates many, many other things in our body, like critical things like memory, learning, emotions, temperature reproduction, appetite. And uh, as a hangover from the war on drugs, remember, for the last half century, only studies into the harms of cannabis were funded by the U.S. government. And no studies or researchers 
looking into the benefits were funded. So there wasn't a lot of interest in anything positive about cannabis, including learning about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, you know, today, if you're a doctor, whether you're pro or anti-cannabis, just to be a good doctor, you have to understand things like the endocannabinoid system. So it's urgent that we teach doctors about this, but it is only taught in 13% of medical schools. And I'm a little bit mystified by this. I mean, the simple answer is uh, that it's a hangover from the war on drugs, these conservative institutions, you know, and a lot of the medical societies get a lot of money from pharma. They just haven't been interested in patients using cannabis. There's a lot of institutional momentum and conservatism to overcome, but it, it is very shocking that it's not being taught because to be a good doctor is to be an educated doctor. And this stuff is really integral to what we need to know. And there's been a lot of in the history of like the government actually trying to shut down people that were doing research in cannabis, particularly if they showed positive results. Um, for example, you write about Marcus Conant, who had to fight for the right to just talk about cannabis with AIDS patients. Yeah, no, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, the, you know, the U.S., the war on cannabis users, I, I'm sure a lot of people will feel echoes and similarities with the war on Kratom users. Uh, the war on cannabis users has been disgraceful, and I have a whole chapter on that. And with Marcus Conant, uh, California legalized medical cannabis in 1996, which was uh, three years after my dad's book came out, Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine, which provided a lot of the background to enable them to legalize it. And the government, Barry Caffrey, I believe, was the drug czar, they were trying to intimidate doctors, arrest them, take away their license, sort of blacklist them if they actually followed the law in California and recommended medical cannabis. So uh, there's a whole bunch of doctors that, that stood up against this. There were lawsuits. And, you know, now we're in this strange situation where medical cannabis is legal in 40 states and uh, it's still illegal at the federal level. It's the most incoherent thing ever. And what's incoherent is the federal illegality, not the illegality, given that 94 percent of Americans currently support legal access to medical cannabis. So, you know, Biden's talking about descheduling. I think we need to fully legalize, but we're just going to have a incoherent policy until the federal government catches up with the states and, frankly, until the doctors catch up with the patients. Just to say on the topic of doctors, you talk about there are doctors who just write off all cannabis use as abuse. And then on the other hand, um, like how I got my medical card, you call a guy up, uh, say you have this and this, and he says, uh, okay, you got a medical card. Here's uh, give 50 bucks to the state, and here it is in the mail. Um, can you just talk about that kind of dichotomy a little bit? Yeah, no, I don't think either of them is, is very healthy. I mean, you know, like all other issues. Just like Kratom, as we were talking about earlier, like there are benefits, there are harms, and you have to take both into account. It's not a wonder drug that can cure everything, but it certainly, certainly shouldn't be criminalized. I think patients need legal access to medical cannabis. It's safer than many of the other drugs we use, such as painkillers or, or sedatives for insomnia. So it's harm reduction to have people have access. At the same time, I'm a big advocate in educating patients. Like when I counsel and certify medical cannabis patients, I educate them about the harms and the benefits. I spend a lot of time talking to them and I make sure they understand medication interactions, you know, to start low and to go slow so they don't take too much and have a like really anxiety attack, an awful experience. There's a lot of education that needs to be done. So I think something between those two extremes of like 
doctors saying no medical use and sticking their heads in the sand, and other doctors wanting to make a quick buck and just certifying patients without really educating or counseling them, there has to be something in between the two. You have recommendations um, about how to talk to your PCP about the use of cannabis. Uh, Could you talk about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge believer in open communication between doctors and patients. To not communicate doesn't work at all. A lot of the problem with communication is coming from the doctors. They don't know much about it, so they sort of shut down the conversation. They don't know how to advise uh, patients. So it's urgent that uh, we educate doctors and nurses about cannabis. You know, then the doctors complain that patients get their information from the bud tenders who, in truth, shouldn't be giving out medical advice because they're not Mm -hmm. medically trained. But most studies show that people want to get the information from their doctors but can't. So educating doctors is critical. And I think just like with any drug or medicine, a little bit of education goes a long way in terms of having people use it safely. Like you don't necessarily have to smoke it. You could use a dry herb vaporizer, which doesn't incinerate it. It just heats it up. So it's, it's safer for your lungs. There's less crap in it when you inhale. I mean, there are some very, very simple ways to educate patients. And again, this is true for opiates, for cannabis, for kratom, for benzodiazepines. You know, it's all about having educated doctors and open doctor-patient communication. We could, we could save lives by doing this. Um, not with cannabis, because you can't fatally overdose with cannabis, but we certainly could save lives with all the other drugs, with open um, communication between doctors and patients. You write about two groups you call uh, reefer pessimists and canatopians. The one thing that stuck with me that you said that they kind of radicalize each other over the years, and that's certainly happening in the Kratom world as well. And can you just speak about the dynamics of that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for example, you're someone who believes in cannabis, you're, and you use it, but mm-hmm. you should want to know about the harms. Because with any drug or medicine, you want to know the benefits, the harms, the right dose. Are there any contaminants? How do you use this safely? You don't want to harm yourself. And, you know, with cannabis, the U.S. government really lied about it for half a century. And the problem is now when a new study comes out about harm, right? Say a study comes out and says not safe during pregnancy. Many of the cannabis proponents or advocates will just reflexively and automatically dismiss that study as, oh, that's yet another a uh, U.S. government propaganda piece. And that's a, yeah. a very dangerous attitude, if you ask me. I've even had patients say the government was lying about cannabis. Why should I get a vaccine? They, they're probably yeah. lying about that, too. And, and when the government squanders its cr- credibility, it really digs itself into a hole. At the same time, the cannabis, the reefer pessimists, the people who are against cannabis, uh, this, many of the psychiatrists, you know, they tend to be very biased against it for a whole variety of reasons that I go over in my book. And, you know, they still put medical marijuana in quotation marks, which is derogatory and and dismissive. And that kind of attitude makes it impossible for patients to have a good talk with their doctors. And again, that's dangerous because then they just don't tell the doctors and the doctors don't know and might give them other medications that interact with the cannabis. So uh, both sides over time tend to like get annoyed at the other's message and then sort of, you know, and again, also we have these state by state legalization referendums and votes. And when, whenever there's a vote or a contest, both sides have to brandish their most extreme arguments, right? Um, You don't see ads saying, well, cannabis is helpful, but also has these harms in the referendums. You see cannabis is great or cannabis is awful. And again, I think not only 
the two sides, but the process of how we're legalizing it is radicalizing the two sides and making each of them a little bit more extreme. So, uh, you know, but in the background, society is vastly shifting to be pro and accepting of cannabis. So that sort of gives a little more, you know, credibility and ammunition to the to the pro cannabis people. But uh, part of why I wrote the book is to try to get everybody on more on the same page to go over like what actually are the harms? What does it do during pregnancy? How dangerous is it to drive on cannabis? Does it affect your memory as an adult? What about as a teen? And and all the benefits? Can it help with autism? Can it help, as we discussed, with cancer or cancer pain? You know, is it addictive? Can it help with chronic pain? Can it help get people off opiates? So I try to go through all of these. I explain the arguments from both sides. Then I go through the latest science, and then I come up what I think, having been involved in this issue my whole life, is a reasonable middle path that we could all move forward with. Yeah, and I definitely wanted to get into the science, but I have one more question, sort of about the politics. Like you bring up big pharma in the book, um, in a couple of places. What role does big pharma play? Because I know there's a kratom community narrative that the FDA is trying to shut down kratom because it's going to replace a lot of these drugs that are big pharma's trying to sell. In a sense, it's uh, true. A lot of people are um, using kratom. And is there? Do you think there's any truth in the narrative that the FDA and big pharma are trying to shut down botanicals? Certainly, uh, big pharma makes money on their medications, and they mm. lose money on botanicals. So there's like plausible. And then you look at how big pharma has handled the cannabis issue. They have been opposed to all of the legalization referendums. They've been working very hard to keep cannabis illegal, while at the same time they've been developing their own cannabis-like or cannabis-based medications based on the endocannabinoid system to help alleviate uh, the symptoms that medicinal cannabis can alleviate. So in that um, schema, exactly what you are saying would come to pass. Cannabis would be illegal, and your only choice for relief would be to buy an expensive pharmaceutical from Big Pharma. So, And it's documented that they've, uh, Big Pharma has opposed every single attempt to legalize medical marijuana in the same way that they seem to be opposed to Kratom. Now, how direct a role the money has versus how much of this is cultural and political is a little bit hard to say. I mean, they certainly was a direct role as Big Pharma was contributing to the anti-legalization campaign in every single state. Recently with cannabis, you know, now it's legal in 40 states, you know, the, the dam is breaking in terms of cannabis legalization, though you certainly still get could get arrested if you're in, you know, Idaho or Nebraska. We have a lot of work to do. Big Pharma's taking a more if we can't beat them, join them. And they're just not really fighting against legalization. They're more trying to take over the industry. I mean, you know, the uh, activists have legalized cannabis working hard for the last 50 years. And now a lot of people are quite concerned that big pharma, tobacco and alcohol, all of whom oppose cannabis legalization because they didn't want the competition. Now that it's becoming legalization, legalized, they're colonizing the industry and trying to take it over. So, you know, this has a lot of very interesting implications for Kratom, which might be a little bit beyond, uh, you know, the scope of what we could do today. But, you know, there's this big fight over Kratom with some people wanting to criminalize it and other people wanting to, including me, to legalize it and to regulate it so that it's safe and available to people. Like, why shouldn't they be allowed to use a botanical medication? It, people, it doesn't kill people unless it's contaminated. And, you know, as long as people are educated and make an informed choice and know 
that some people can get addicted to it. We don't, you know, it's not illegal for alcohol just because you can get addicted. And it'll be really interesting um, to see how the Kratom legalization thing plays out. And I agree with you that pharma is not at all interested in legalizing Kratom because they lose money. But, you know, I just don't know how specifically involved they are in the policy at this point. In the Kratom world, we have a lot of real-world evidence. I mean, I produced a 250-page document of just first-person testimonies that were posted on our website alone. But that's not exactly science, but that could probably be considered real-world evidence. There's a history of traditional use where it doesn't seem to have harmed people too much versus the more rigid, random, controlled trials. Real-world evidence is rejected as being too anecdotal, but you actually point out there's drawbacks to um, the RCTs as well that can still contradict the reality. Will you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, randomized controlled trials are considered like the gold standard for doctors because, you know, they're double blinded, they're placebo controlled, the doctor doesn't know what you got, the patient doesn't know what you got, and that factors out the placebo effect so that if someone gets better um, with the study drug as opposed to the placebo, you know there's a real effect. And these are really important studies, but we don't have randomized controlled trials for every medication that we use in medicine. Uh, and there's a real double standard. You know, if it, we don't have a RCT, a randomized controlled trial for cannabis, they say, oh, there's no evidence for it. But tons of stuff we do in medicine doesn't have randomized controlled trials. Our treatment for cannabis addiction, some people get addicted to cannabis. There's not a single FDA approved drug for cannabis addiction, but they still use Ambien or Gabapentin or all kinds of medications to help people with the side effects of cannabis withdrawal. And um, I just think there's always been this like big double standard. And the other thing is, uh, it's hard to blind people with psychoactive substances. Most people will know if they're given 20 milligrams of cannabis or THC or a placebo because they will feel high. That's part of why people have been using it for 5,000 years. The same with Kratom. It's going to be, there are many different components to Kratom. It's not just like studying one molecule. And people feel the effect. So it's very hard to do randomized controlled trials. And more and more we're recognizing that real world evidence, like patient reported outcomes, patient registries, insurance data, we use these all the time for like a drug comes out for like post-marketing surveillance. Like this is really, really valuable evidence. And in some ways it might be more applicable to kratom or to cannabis because again these are complicated botanical molecules uh complicated plants they have many many kratom has dozens uh cannabis has hundreds of different molecules so it's really hard to just test it they do several things at once they help with pain with anxiety the randomized control trials usually just test for one metric at a time and really miss a lot of what cannabis and and kratom would do And also, you feel the effect of Kratom. You're going to be able to guess if you got a placebo or not. And if you could guess the placebo, I mean, this is a big problem. They're having testing psychedelics. Most people know the difference between getting 125 micrograms of acid and getting a placebo. Something like 98% of people can guess which is the placebo arm and which isn't the placebo arm. And this makes it really hard to do placebo-controlled studies. And I think the same is true with cannabis And with Kratom, because they're psychoactive, people are going to be able to guess that they've been given the active drug as opposed to the placebo. So I think um, that was a long answer, but I think we've got to be open-minded and judicious about the types of evidence uh, that we include uh, as we're moving forward with these complicated botanical uh, medicines such as cannabis and Kratom. And I think that 
around the world, there's gaining momentum for incorporating real world evidence to supplement and fill in the gaps for what we do and don't know using just randomized controlled trials. I'm going to read this quote. It's from uh, page 187 that I think encapsulates kind of the problem here. Uh, one of the problems, anyway. It's You say, uh, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine focuses on memory, learning, and attention in particular that many people perform worse in after they consume weed. If researchers had studied and NASM had looked at creativity, humor, and insight, I suspect there wouldn't have been deficits and people might have done significant better than the norm so it seems like there's just the whole problem especially with research into illegal drugs like cannabis where they're they start off looking for the negative results absolutely i mean i think part of that you could you could enjoy cannabis so it must be harmful if you're using it there's a puritanicism a puritanicalism uh if kratom can be used to make you feel better there must be something wrong with it let's assume it's harmful and then prove this harmful. And in reality, if we're doing science, not politically biased science, we're going to say, is cannabis harmful or helpful? Not assume a priori cannabis is harmful and then do 50 years of studies to prove that original assumption of harm was true and not fund anybody that's looking for benefits. And I think Kratom faces a similar obstacle. It's been sort of stigmatized and tainted. And again, I'm someone in recovery from addiction. People don't like people who are addicted. There's so much stigma. And if people who are addicted use Kratom and people who have chronic pain use Kratom, it must be something bad and you can get high with it. I think there's just a lot of judgment, judgment and stigma. But the fact is Kratom has, just like cannabis, has medical potential. And there's a lot about Kratom that we just don't know, know yet about harms and about benefits. So we've got to put the stigma, the voodoo and the judgment aside and, and start doing some real neutral, balanced science about these these quote-unquote drugs of misuse because we want to learn how to minimize harm and how to maximize benefit and there's also the issue of like people use them anyways the 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 safest way thing you could possibly do for any drug is to make it legal regulated controlled educate people and if it's all out in the open if someone gets in trouble whether it's cannabis psychedelics opiates or kratom they could ask for help i mean i truly believe that legal drugs are safe drugs and the only reason or one of the main reasons we're losing 100,000 people a year to opiate overdoses, which is tragic beyond belief, is because these people are using illegal fentanyl. If mm -hmm. opiates were legal, nobody would be dying. I mean, this is such a strong argument for the legalization and regulation of Kratom. It gives people an exit ramp. It gives them a way off out of the heroin. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we, we can do a lot better than we're doing. And I have no doubt that if Kratom was like illegal nationally, it, it would it would only be a couple of days before it was mixed with the fentanyl supply. Uh, I think the only thing that's saving people now in the states where it's illegal is they can cross the border into a legal state. But also there's a problem that it's a gray market. There's not enough regulation. There's a lot of lead in the Kratom. Um, there's a lot of contamination. So they don't know what they're putting in their body at this point. I think that's a problem with cannabis, too, because it's even with the legal stuff, you have lab shopping. So they'll put the highest amount of THC on it. So from one strain to the next or you say chemovar to the next, you don't actually know if you got 30 percent THC and then you have 30 percent. You really like notch you on your ass the next time. Definitely a huge problem. Um, mm. It's more it's becoming less of a problem as we legalize and regulate. 
you're absolutely right. There's lab shopping and there's, you know, we haven't legalized uh, in a perfect way by any means. But you look at people in states where cannabis is completely illegal. And that's where people are using like Delta 8 and other synthetic cannabinoids, which don't show up on drug tests. Mm. And again, I still will argue to the end of time that legal drugs are safer drugs. They're not completely safe because they're drugs. And the regulatory system isn't perfect. Just as you allude to, there's loopholes and people shop for the labs that will give them the results. That needs to be cracked down on. That needs to be cracked down on in Massachusetts, which is one of the you know, models for cannabis legalization. And we even have a big problem with that. So we have a lot of work to do. Uh, but certainly the more, again, it's these drugs are legal and out into the open and studied neutrally and available and regulated. So you're not getting the lead, you're not getting the contaminants, uh, the safer they're going to be. I mean, much of the harm comes, I would say much more of the harm comes from the criminalization than from the drug use itself, uh, particularly with Kratom and with cannabis and certainly with psychedelics too. So we're making these drugs much more dangerous than they need to be. And also the research, there's um, roadblocks in the research when it's illegal. Well, so NIDA is doing, they're actually doing good work on Kratom. They're doing a massive uh, real world assessment right now. And I help to um, recruit participants and stuff for them. And they are actually going to be able to test the samples of Kratom from a subset of the participants to see what the uh, alkaloid profile is and whatnot. And I'm guessing they that NIDA couldn't do this with cannabis because it's still federally schedule one absolutely cannabis has been federally schedule one since the beginning of the controlled substance act in the early 1970s and schedule one means no medical utility which is obviously preposterous like there's marinol a, a fda approved drug which is thc for all kinds of indications and there's a index which is cbd for childhood epilepsy like how is the government claiming there's still no medical utility when there are FDA-approved medications from cannabis, mm-hmm. not to mention tens of people are using it with obvious, unquestionable medical benefit? With Schedule 1, it also says high abuse liability. Now, cannabis certainly does have some abuse liability, but it's like low to moderate. It's certainly less than alcohol or tobacco. So Schedule 1 of Controlled Substance Act doesn't make any sense. You could even argue it shouldn't be scheduled at all. It doesn't not only not need to be locked away in schedule one, you don't need to schedule it as it's safer than alcohol or tobacco than anyone over 21 to just go and buy. You could just educate people and regulate it. Um, But the schedule one status makes it exceedingly difficult to research any drug. We're also like in that situation with many of the psychedelics and many other drugs. And nobody really wants it to be still in schedule one because everybody wants to research it. So, um, you know, we're making progress. As I mentioned earlier, Biden says he's going to reschedule it. Uh, Hopefully he'll deschedule it. But um, the way we've criminalized it has just made it very, very difficult to do good research on cannabis, particularly of the benefits. But for example, because of schedule one, you can't just get cannabis at a dispensary and test it. You're only allowed to do research on a government-grown cannabis, which is just this awful cannabis that's moldy and mushy and has stems and seeds, sort of like what I used to get in high school 45 years ago. Uh, And they can't even research the (laughs) cannabis that people are actually using. So how can you show harms or benefits if you're not even studying what people are using? So we've got to evolve our federal policy in cannabis to make it much easier to do research because research is literally in everyone's benefit. That's the uh, actual NIDA farm that's at University of Mississippi. Is that where they get the uh, the bad cannabis? Yeah. 
Um, and I, I called it moldy mush strain. Yeah, moldy mush strain. Because there was actual mold in it, right? Yeah, Sue Sicily <laughs> finally got approval to do research, and they sent her some cannabis. And she's like, what the heck is this? This has seeds, it has stem, it had mold in it. Again, you can't prove harms or benefits with that junk. Uh, very recently, the DEA, under extreme pressure and NIDA, have opened up who can grow cannabis for research. Again, this is under tremendous pressure not to just keep spiking the research like they've done for the last 50 years. So I think things will, I think things will start to get better. But, you know, as always, institutions move slowly and it's going to be uh, gradual, the improvement. You can't just research uh, legal weed from uh, like legal recreational states. They can't use any of that for research at all. I haven't been able to at all. Okay. Very recently, there's been some new legislation passed, which I think creates a pathway to being able to do that. So again, this is changing and will change, but it always changes very slowly. And then research takes years to conduct. So we're not going to have good, you know, we're just starting to do it now. So uh, things are improving. It's just very slow. What led to the idea that cannabis causes psychosis? I guess it was the movie Reefer Madness, probably. And But is there any <laughs> truth at all to it? I mean, can it exacerbate uh, psychosis if somebody's already prone to it? I think you, you had an example of that uh, with like a young person that you knew um, in the book. No, absolutely. Part of the problem is the word psychosis can mean many different things. Mm. There are diseases of which psychosis is a part, like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. There's substance-induced psychosis. You could take steroids or alcohol or a hallucinogen or uh, amphetamine or cannabis and become psychotic for days to weeks to months just from the substance. And then there's the effect of these drugs or medicines, how you look at them, on people who have a history of psychosis. So the government and the prohibitionists have claimed for 50 years that cannabis, quote-unquote, causes schizophrenia. Now, cannabis does not cause schizophrenia. The rates of schizophrenia have been about 1% worldwide since the 1950s. And the use of cannabis has gone from like in the hundreds of thousands to the hundreds of millions over the last 70 years. I mean, a thousand times more people are using cannabis and the rates of schizophrenia have remained rock stable at 1%. Cannabis clearly does not quote unquote cause schizophrenia. That was just a a prohibition talking point, a war on drugs talking point. However, cannabis can precipitate schizophrenia earlier in people who are predisposed to it, as can alcohol, steroids, your Ritalin, your Adderall, um, as can psychedelics, as can alcohol or tobacco. It's one of many things that can help precipitate schizophrenia earlier. And that is a harm. That is bad. I mean, if you get schizophrenia at 21 instead of 25, those are four years where you're ill instead of functioning and learning adult skills and becoming independent. Um, cannabis also can destabilize people who, with bipolar or with schizophrenia who use it and have gotten themselves into a level of stability. Cannabis can knock them off their stability. So can steroids, so can psychedelics. Cannabis doesn't have a monopoly on destabilizing people with psychosis, but it certainly can destabilize. So uh, cannabis can precipitate schizophrenia earlier, which is a big harm. Cannabis can cause a substance-induced psychosis like many other substances. Cannabis can destabilize people who have a history of psychosis, which is a really big deal. And they shouldn't be using cannabis or should be using it with extreme caution. But cannabis doesn't cause schizophrenia. So it's a little bit of a nuanced discussion that's been sort of exploited by both sides, uh, particularly the anti-side.
Yeah, and addiction is an, another issue. Um, you talk about the criteria and the DSM-5 for cannabis use disorder. Most people think of cannabis as non-addictive, but that's not entirely true, is it? Cannabis is definitely can be addictive. The rates of cannabis addiction have been vastly exaggerated by the government and the psychiatric community over the last 50 years. So it but it's certainly there are people that get very dependent on it that give up their goals that smoke their lives away. I mean, it certainly can be addictive. I treat cannabis addiction. I'm actually good at treating it because I understand cannabis and I'm not judgmental about it. And I understand that the person's probably being helped by cannabis in some ways and harmed in other ways. And you have to figure out what needs the cannabis is meeting and meet them with other modalities if you're going to get someone off cannabis. So it certainly can be addictive. The way, one of the ways in which that they've exaggerated the rates of cannabis addiction. Um, and it's really bad to give someone a, def a diagnosis of addiction to anything if they don't have it. Uh, you know, people treat people, other people, doctors, nurses. Uh, if you have a diagnosis of addiction, you get treated with stigma. You know, they don't treat you very well. They don't give you pain medications. It's really harmful to give people a diagnosis of addiction when they don't have it. And the definitions of cannabis addiction have been written to be so broad that they vastly include many people that aren't addicted. For example, they include tolerance and withdrawal. In fact, you only need two of 11 criteria to get a diagnosis of quote-unquote cannabis use disorder. And one is tolerance and two is withdrawal. But all medical cannabis patients have tolerance and withdrawal. So by including these in the definition of addiction, you needlessly pathologize all of these medical cannabis patients. Now, when we prescribe opiates, we don't include tolerance and withdrawal as, the, as part of the definition of addiction because virtually all opiate users have tolerance and withdrawal. And why would we needlessly uh, pathologize uh, them with a diagnosis of addiction? So there's a real double standard for cannabis. And we fully need to redefine, quote unquote, cannabis addiction so that it actually defines people who are having a problem with it and not just everybody who uses it and has some tolerance and withdrawal. So we have a lot of work to do. The final thing I'll say is that, uh, again, people do get addicted to cannabis and it can be quite devastating. But as someone who's in recovery from opiate addiction and who's treated like thousands of people for both cannabis addiction and opiate addiction, I can say that the quality of the addiction is somewhat different. I mean, when people are really addicted to opiates, they'll do anything, you know, rob pharmacies, injure themselves. Uh, it's really awful to see, but I've been to so many Narcotics Anonymous meetings, you wouldn't believe what people do to get opiates. And the cannabis addiction, again, can be very destructive to your life, but nobody's robbing dispensaries to get cannabis. They might be robbing dispensaries because everything's in cash because we don't have safe banking and you're not allowed to use credit cards. But again, that's the harm of prohibition, not a harm of cannabis. But the addiction is of a different quality than the addiction to opiates. And certainly it's not lethal like the addiction to alcohol or the addiction to benzodiazepines. So again, cannabis is addictive, but you have to view it in the context of it's been exaggerated both how severe it can be and how widespread it is. And a lot of my friends who were uh, former heroin addicts who who now take kratom say the same thing about kratom that and and I'm sure because it has like partial opioid agonists it's it might be a little more um, severe than a cannabis addiction p possibly but they say the same thing about the um, the, the sort of criminal life that they they do anything to get a heroin but not uh, not kratom and I think there there's been a sociological study out of Malaysia that's that's shown that people have 
have uh, less uh, HIV risk behaviors when they're they switch to kratom um, over like methamphetamine or heroin. And but I also thought it was funny. Well, you define addiction, and I think NIDA also defines it as continued use despite negative consequences. Um, but you put yourself through the criteria of caffeine use disorder if that was such a thing and you would have scored 11 out of 11 uh, you said it was like a spinal tap uh, score that you got there turn it up to 11 and like to me i i my blood pressure went way up over the holidays because it was the holidays so i quit caffeine for a week and oh man i was really irritable and and i actually couldn't sleep and uh you know it, it was like wow i really am uh, kind of like physically dependent on this stuff you have tolerance and withdrawal to caffeine yeah and if just tolerance and withdrawal were enough to define addiction we'd all be addiction addicted to caffeine and why pathologize all of us why give us all a diagnosis of addiction and then the further hypocrisy is that the drugs that we all use caffeine and alcohol they don't include tolerance and withdrawal for addiction because we all use these drugs, whereas with cannabis, they do. Uh, so again, uh, the whole what is an addiction and how we apply it to these different drugs of misuse is really important because to understand addiction and to educate people can save lives. Uh, but at the same time, it's really been weaponized and used as a, as a tool in the war on drugs. And we have to unlearn a lot of stuff and we've got to redo our definitions so that they, again, they maximize benefits and, and minimize harms. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about uh, the chapter on pregnancy. Everybody, you know, kind of assumes you shouldn't do any uh, drugs during pregnancy, but it's even like some pregnancy studies showing minimal harm were suppressed by the NIH. And even the thing with, you know, uh, the crack babies that turned out to be a big hoax, not that anybody should use drugs during pregnancy, but it seems like they, even even with that, they've exaggerated the harms. Well, again, there's what's true, and then there's what have they been telling us during the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a primary care doctor, I'm really conservative about everything during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some drugs really are harmful during pregnancy. Alcohol is the most harmful. Fetal alcohol syndrome is a real syndrome. It's extremely destructive to use heavy alcohol use during pregnancy. And the other fact is we don't truly know how dangerous or safe any of these drugs are during pregnancy because it's unethical to experiment on pregnant yeah. humans. You can't yeah. give a thousand women Kratom and a thousand women a placebo and see if there are <laughs> problems with the mom or the baby. That's yeah. it's unethical. Same with cannabis. So um, then the other point, sorry, this is a complicated issue. As my wife points out, if a woman is pregnant and she's having nausea or a migraine or severe pain or can't sleep or severe anxiety, she's got to take something. You can't just say, don't take anything and suffer. So what I tend to look at is what is the least harmful that, uh, thing that we can give to someone. Like in general, as a doctor, that's what I do, and specifically when they're pregnant. Uh, the problem is we don't really know how dangerous uh, th- these drugs are, drugs slash medicines are, kratom and cannabis and psychedelics during pregnancy because it's not ethical um, to treat people. And the final thing I'll say is that legal drugs are safer no matter what. So if a pregnant woman's deciding to use cannabis, and a lot of women decide to do that anyways, regardless of what the doctor says, because doctors unfortunately don't have that much credibility on cannabis because they've, as I described in my book, been on the wrong side of the war on drugs for 50 years. Um, If women are going to be using these drugs anyways, uh, if they're safe, regulated, legal, as you mentioned, the kratom doesn't have any lead, the cannabis doesn't have any paraquat, 
or heavy metals, it's going to be much safer for mom and baby. So again, we educate people. We're doing our best to study it. We try to not stigmatize people so that people can get help and tell the truth to their doctor about what they're taking and if they're struggling. Um, and we just make the best judgment we can. It's very difficult. And in the adults and teens chapter, you talk about cognition problems. You know, there's been a kind of a false diagnosis in the past of uh, a motivational syndrome, I think it was called. The uh, mental health issues have been exaggerated in cannabis, but the, but is there ev- any evidence cannabis causes um, long-term cognition problems? Not in adults. Okay. Uh, particularly, the, the brain starts uh, stops maturating, finishes maturating by about age 25. So certainly, if you use cannabis modestly after age 25, there's no evidence that it causes cognitive harm. In fact, uh, you know, I just think it affects some things and helps some things and harms others, as we talked about earlier. It, it certainly does make you uh, have a, not as good at consolidating short-term memories. So if you use cannabis, you remember that you had a good time at the party, and you'll probably remember who you talked to, but you won't remember all the details of the conversation because it yeah. interferes with that. At the same time, cannabis does help people appreciate art, music. It helps them with their sexuality, with their spirituality, with their connection to other people. We're in this epidemic of loneliness. So I just think that for adults, cannabis uh, harms or suppresses some forms of cognition and facilitates others so that people are sort of making a choice as to what part of their brain to use and that there's no long-term harm. Uh, For teens, it's a little bit more concerning because their brains are developing and they're forming connections and they're pruning other connections that are extraneous. And, you know, when we use a drug like cannabis, or if the doctor gives you steroids for your asthma or your sciatica or whatever, these are huge doses. They're much higher than the doses that our bodies make. And we just don't know what these huge external doses of THC does to the developing endocannabinoid system in teens. And there's some evidence to show that it can affect brain development in a negative way. Unfortunately, a lot of these studies were done under the war on drugs. And they'd also include, you know, poor kids who are using other drugs and who are smoking and who don't do as well as standardized tests because they're not from privileged backgrounds. And they mixed all this stuff together and blamed it on the cannabis. So the quality of the research is very dodgy. But, you know, where there's smoke, there's often fire. And there's just enough to be concerned that we don't recommend the teenagers use cannabis. We say to teenagers, we don't say just say no, that was a disaster. If you lie about the drug, they're just going to ignore you. We say just say wait, at least until you're 18, so that your brain isn't as vulnerable to the effects of cannabis use. Uh, There's a lot of uh, science uh, about cannabis as a treatment for chronic pain. It's kind of controversial because a lot of the uh, chronic pain patients are being cut off as a result of the CDC guidelines, as a response to the uh, opioid crisis. But is there sort of maybe a pain threshold to where cannabis can't, work enough where where you have to use opioids. I think you mentioned like if you broke your bone, you probably need some morphine, but then you could maybe treat chronic pain um, more with cannabis. Absolutely. Uh, Cannabis is very good for mild to moderate pain. For example, like the pain that millions of Americans are getting as they get sort of older and portlier and their knees and backs start to go. It's really, really effective for that kind of pain and for nerve pain. Even the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine in 2017, a report came out that there was conclusive evidence that cannabis helps with nerve pain and also with the insomnia and the anxiety that accompanies uh, chronic pain. 
So I don't think many people are arguing or sensible, sensible people are arguing that cannabis doesn't help with mild to moderate, especially because millions of people are using it would benefit and instead of other more dangerous medications. I mean, it's been shown to lower opiate use and benzodiazepine use and gabapentinoid use, da more dangerous drugs. Cannabis is not strong enough, in my opinion, for severe pain. Uh, you know, for example, I had to have spine surgery about five years ago. Uh, the last thing I wanted to do was go on opiates because I was addicted to opiates 15 years ago. But, you know, when you have spine surgery, you're going to be put on opiates. The pain is way too severe. After about four days, I was able to switch to transition to cannabis when the pain was moderate. If you break a bone, it's severe pain. You're going to need an opiate. Cannabis just isn't that strong. But for the mild to moderate chronic pain that people have. I mean, what are the other options? You have Tylenol, that doesn't do anything. Uh, you know, you have Kratom, but that needs to be legalized and regulated. Uh, you have uh, opiates, which are very hard to get, as you mentioned, from a doctor because of the stigma and the, the government. And also, nobody wants to prescribe them just because so many people are overdosing on them, even if they're overdosing on illegal opiates. It just scares people away from them. And then finally, the non-steroidals that so many people take, your Advil, your ibuprofen, your Aleve, your Diclofenac, uh, these, if they don't give you a heart attack or an ulcer, they kill 10,000 people a year. They kill your kidneys. I have so many patients in their 50s, 60s, and 70s whose kidneys are slowly dying because of all the non-steroidals they took. People think it's over the counter. It must be safe. And uh, we could prevent so much of that with small doses of medicinal cannabis. I think we could do so much harm reduction. Uh, the more, as, as doctors become more educated and fluent, with using cannabis, there's tremendous potential to help people. And uh, with cannabis and opioid use disorder and even opioid withdrawal, it seems like it seems like, you know, basically the book is like every everything. There's a there's an extreme on one side where maybe it's being oversold by the industry, like a bud tender will tell you that and uh, somebody won't go to a doctor. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, people are saying, no, it doesn't work at all for uh, opioid use disorder. You definitely need the uh, Suboxone and whatnot. Is there evidence that it works um, to, to maybe get people off opioids or with uh, help with um, withdrawal from opioids? Um, well, yes. I think there are five ways in which cannabis can help with the opiate crisis, four of which I support. Number one, a new patient with chronic pain, start them on cannabis instead of opiates. Number two, if a person's on a legacy patient is, happens to still be on a huge dose of opiates, offer them to transition from the opiates to cannabis. This has to be voluntary. We're not cutting anybody off, but you could certainly offer to give it a try. I'm not at all a believer in cutting people off opiates. All that does is cause misery and suicide. We don't cut people off opiates. Number three, um, you could use much lower doses of opiates if you use it with cannabis because they co-work on the same receptors. And that's very good harm reduction if you could lower the dose of opiates with cannabis and still keep people comfortable. Number four, uh, cannabis is incredibly effective. And I know this personally, as well as from the literature, as well as from thousands of patients I've treated, cannabis is excellent for opiate withdrawal symptoms. And if someone's trying to get off opiates, it doesn't make their participation in suboxone programs any worse or methadone programs. It just helps them be more comfortable. It's much better than the pharmaceuticals we give people like clonidine or whatever we give people for opiate withdrawal. They don't work very well at all. Cannabis is spectacular for opiate withdrawal. The only thing I take issue with is if someone is addicted to opiates, there's very, very good evidence that suboxone and methadone, a 50 to 80% reduction in overdose deaths 
uh, in overdoses and overdose deaths. Hmm. And we just don't have that data yet for cannabis. So how could you justify using something that you don't have data for that's life or death uh, when you have other medications that you do have data for? So if someone hmm. comes to me uh, addicted to opiates and wants treatment, I'll give them Suboxone. And I'll say yeah. you could also use cannabis as an adjunct for the chronic pain, for your anxiety, for your insomnia, for your opiate withdrawal symptoms. But we're not using the cannabis as methadone or Suboxone because we don't have the data. Oh, yeah. You just mentioned insomnia, which is another thing. It See, it doesn't work for me. And you said there are some people, and this happens to me, where if I smoke too close to bedtime, I'll get overstimulated, and I'll close my eyes and see a kaleidoscope, and I'll be up all night thinking. Uh, is that does that have to do with strain? Uh, would CBD, along with uh, cannabis, maybe help with that? Or does it just have to do with how different people's brains work differently? Well, the answer is yes. And um, I, I just have to point out, I have to sign off in about four minutes. Okay. Um, cannabis helps a lot of people with insomnia, and it is safer than many of the other things we use, such as your Ambien's, your Trazodone's, your Benadryl's, your Valium's. Generally, it tends to work better for people at low doses than at high doses because it can be quite stimulating at high doses. Cannabis can even cause anxiety, not relaxation at high doses. Again, as you mentioned, everybody reacts differently. So some people find the cannabis, they fall asleep right away. Like some people can't use it medically or recreationally because boom, they're just out asleep. Other people find it very stimulating. In general, it, it does have to do with the dose, lowish doses. It does have to do with the strain, more CBD so it's relaxing. You know, even though indica sativa, that's a whole nother discussion about whether that's an actual distinction, there are certainly indica-like strains of cannabis that are more relaxing, that have terpenes in them, different components of cannabis that make you sleepy. So uh, it, it is a combination of like how it affects you, your dose, uh, what type of cannabis you use. It's sort of very complicated on one level. On the other level, it's not that complicated. I mean, just like with other sleep medications, if it helps you and doesn't make you groggy the next day and helps you get to sleep, we'll use it. If it keeps you up or you don't like the feeling or you don't feel good the next day, we don't use it. it, it like a lot of medicine, it's really trial and error. And I just wanted to ask about CBD. You talk a lot in the book about how it maybe lowers the kind of anxiety effects of THC. And I'm also wondering just about the research they're doing in cancer and the fact that it can be uh, neuroprotective. Well, CBD works on so many different receptors in the body. The two receptors it doesn't really directly have much interaction with, ironically, are the cannabinoid receptors. But it affects like the serotonin receptors, which is why it can help with anxiety and mood. It's anti-inflammatory. It affects the capsaicin receptors, which is why it helps with chronic pain. And the fact is, um, we the jury's out on a lot of these indications for CBD. We think it helps, and patients certainly think it helps. But uh, the, study is, the studies are just lagging behind. I mean, sort of the marketing claims have sort of soared above the evidence base. So I think that CBD is non-toxic. I mean, there are a couple of things you have to be careful of. You know, your liver enzymes can be affected. Um, you have to make sure that you have a safe source when you're using CBD because it's not regulated. But it's, it's generally a non-toxic. It's non-addictive. It's non um it's not impairing. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the claims are being made for it that we're still studying. So with CBD, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, but the jury is still out. And fortunately, everybody's studying CBD right now. So I think sooner rather than later, we're going to have some more answers. What's the future of cannabis? What do you think 
should happen, what shouldn't happen, what's it going to take to get more cannabis specialists and more uh, doctor's offices and hospitals? Ideally, the future of cannabis involves federal legalization and de complete de-schedulized uh, so that people have safe and legal access to it. No more arrests for cannabis possession, no more stigma, no more judgment. This would cause open communication between doctors and patients and would allow people who get into trouble with it to get asked for and to receive help without punishment or judgment or stigma. Um, we need to educate doctors and we need to research all these questions in a fair and legitimate manner, not like we did during the drug war with a finger on the scale looking for harm. We need to neutrally evaluate the harms and the benefits. And so I think the future is going to be legal cannabis that we understand more and more, both in terms of harms and benefits. And then finally, we need health insurance to pay for it. So it's not just another treatment for the white and the wealthy. It's got to be for everybody. And I have a lot of patients. I work in an inner city clinic as a primary care doctor, and I just have a lot of patients that can't afford it, which is really tragic. Uh, do you have any Carl Sagan stories? I do, but unfortunately, I have an <laughs> appointment. In All right. So if you look at my website, which is just www.petergrinspoon.com, uh, you can learn all about Carl Sagan, John Lennon, my dad, my history, my book. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I thought that was pretty crazy about him uh, smoking pot in your living room. But thank you so much for your time. I'll make sure everybody knows there's a link to the book and whatnot and the website. And uh, I really appreciate your work on cannabis and Kratom. Well, I appreciate your work on Kratom, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Likewise. The book is Seeing Through the Smoke, a Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana, and that was Dr. Peter Grinspoon. There's a direct link where you can buy that in the description. Check us out on Facebook, TikTok, KRADM Science, and on Twitter at Kratom Science, where every Friday night we've been having a roundtable discussion with other members of the Botanical Action Network. The music is Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.